When the Emperor Was Divine is about a Japanese-American family living in Berkeley before World War II, their experience being sent away to the internment camps during the war. And each chapter is told from a different character's point of view, and it's loosely based on events in my own family's history. My mother was sent away to the camps when she was 10, and my grandfather, unlike the father in the book, was arrested by the FBI the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed, and uh, he spent several years in camps that were run by the Department of Justice for uh, dangerous enemy aliens. That was author Julia Tsuka talking about her first novel and recent Big Read selection, When the Emperor Was Divine. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. What happens when your country considers you a national security risk and ships you and your family off to an internment camp for an unspecified period of time? These are the questions Julia Tsuka explores in her novel, When the Emperor Was Divine. Based in part on the experiences of Julie's own family, the novel tells the story of a Japanese-American family forced to leave San Francisco after the start of World War II. Sent to an internment camp in Utah, a mother, daughter, and son come to grips with life in confinement in a bleak desert landscape, missing a father who had been arrested and sent to prison right after Pearl Harbor. The family is released after two years and allowed to return to San Francisco. But their homecoming is fraught with hardship and anxiety about their place in America. When the Emperor Was Divine is a slender book, five short chapters, but it tells a powerful story about a personal and historical tragedy. When I spoke with Julia Tsuka, I asked her why she chose this topic for her first novel. I feel like the topic chose me. I feel like the book snuck up on me. I actually began the novel as a short story. I wrote the first chapter of the book uh, when I was a student at Columbia in workshop. And up until then, I'd written only comedy. And this was the first piece of serious fiction that I'd ever written. And it seemed to come from nowhere. And so I wrote it just to get it out of my system. And then I thought I would return to my, my real work, which was the writing of comedy. So I didn't know it was the first chapter of something that would grow to be much larger. But then I, I was just very compelled by this family, by their situation, by the emotions that I felt while writing about this topic. I think it was something that in my own family, at least, was very suppressed and not really talked about, which I think is typical of uh, many Japanese-American families who went through that, through, through the war, just to remain silent about their experience. So I think it, it was something that I needed to explore for myself in order to understand really my mother better and why she was the way she was. The main characters who are the narrators of the story are nameless. Why did you make that choice? I actually had written an earlier version of the first chapter in which the mother had a, a name. She had a Japanese surname. And as I continued to write about these characters, it seemed more effective actually to unname them. I was really interested in the psychology of the situation. I mean, I just saw her as a woman confronted by history and by circumstance. And I feel like I was almost just, I was following her. I mean, I don't want it to be particularly clear to the reader in the beginning that they're reading about a Japanese-American woman. I happen to be writing about Japanese-Americans, but I, I think I could have been writing about any ethnic group at any point in history. I feel like there's always been an other, a group that's been expelled and sent away. And I also thought that my characters 
were people from whom everything had been taken, their their liberty, their belongings, their sense of self. And I, I think that the one thing that you can't take away from someone is their name. So I wanted to leave them just some tiny shred of self so only they and they alone know who they are. They also take turns narrating. The novel shifts. Each character's point of view really tells the story of one section. And we should say the book has five chapters. It's a small book. Mm -hmm. Did you start writing the book with this structure in mind, or did it evolve as the book evolved? No, again, it was accidental. I wrote the first chapter, again, as a standalone story from the mother's point of view. And then I wrote the second chapter, not as chapter two, but just as another short story. And I happened to be telling it from the point of view of the girl on the train as they're being taken away to the camp. And it was when I finished writing that second story that I realized that those two chapters put together might add up to the beginnings of a novel. I think if I'd sat down at my desk one day just to write a book about the internment camps, I probably would have chosen to tell it all from the point of view of the mother the structure, again, it, it kind of evolved accidentally once I realized I had these two pieces pulled from two different characters' points of view. It made sense to write a third piece or now a third chapter from a different character's point of view. And it also, I think for me as a writer, it just kept the material fresher. It was more interesting. I, I really I liked going into different characters' heads. It just kind of gave me a new burst of energy each time I began a new chapter from a different character's point of view. Well, it's also interesting because each character is telling us a different segment of the story. Mm -hmm. So we have the mother who has read the order and is readying the family and then tell us what the daughter does, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and the daughter, she is right on the cusp of adolescence, and I think she's in a semi-rebellious phase, and yet she is determined to live out her rebellious youth, even if she happens to be in an internment camp. She's a very feisty girl. And the boy is a little younger. He's seven when the novel starts, and he's a little bit too young to understand what's going on. He's a very dreamy child and very much a magical thinker, and he thinks in the way that children often do that everything is his fault, that everyone is being sent away because he's done something wrong. And I think he's the character that I felt closest to also emotionally, just as a person. And I feel like it was also a good point of view to describe the experience of being in camp, I thought, from the point of view of a child. And even if he's in a camp in the middle of the desert for three and a half years, I feel like children have this sense of wonder and connection to nature. So he's still very compelled by the natural world around him, by the scorpions, by lizards, by snakes, by turtles, just in the way that children are. And so it's it's not an utterly bleak and devastating experience, although in many ways it is. But I feel like there are these kind of moments, spots of color, and he's very, very innocent, and he kind of makes up stories about why he is where he is. And then the point of view of the father is kind of held back throughout the entire novel. He's just this missing presence whom we see glimpses of through the other characters, their memories of the father, their dreams of the father. And when we finally see him at the end of the novel, when he's reunited with the family, he's not the man that's, that his wife and children remember. He's a very bitter, angry man, and clearly something has happened to him while he's been away and entertained. But we don't know exactly what it is that happened to him. 
so there's this outburst of anger at the very end of the novel, which, again, came to me as a surprise. I didn't think I would end on that note. But then looking back, I feel like the novel is just a very slow, simmering buildup of nerves. There's all this tension that's built up. And throughout, I feel like the mother especially, you know, her emotions are very, very deeply buried. I think on the surface she tries to remain very calm for the sake of the children. But I think there has to be a release to that tension somewhere. And I feel like there is at the end of the novel with the father's angry rant. Yes, and the daughter, her section of the book, she narrates the train trip going Mm -hmm. from the racetrack where they had been kept to Utah, where the camps have been built. And as we said, the son narrates the camp. But then when they come home after they're released from the camp, that section is narrated with a collective. Yes, it is. That that chapter, when they return in a stranger's backyard, is told from the point of view of both the girl and the boy together— which is now a voice that I've used since. In my second novel, The Buddha in the Attic, I use the collective we voice also. And again, I don't I don't know why I make my choices, but again, it just felt right. Somehow that, that voice, I feel like, opened things up for me as a writer, and it gave me kind of a burst of energy, and it's, there's almost a joyousness that I felt for the children. They're back. They're kind of elated to be back in the world, or they think they're back, but I think in many ways they'll never be completely back. You know, initially they're just, they're so happy to be home, and yet some things have changed and some things have not changed. I mean, I think it's a very difficult experience to re-enter the world. Actually, I, I remember my mother telling me that when she came back from what we Japanese Americans call camp, that Nobody had asked her where she would been, and her classmates just said, you know, oh, hi, Alice, as if she'd never been away at all. So it's a very, I think it's an odd and very confusing experience to come back. So, again, it just felt right to use the girl and the boy together to tell that chapter of the story. Because I think in many ways they're the ones that are the most changed by that whole experience. The mother who opens the book was, for me, a fascinating character The executive order had come down for the evacuation, and there's a whole list of instructions, which I actually then went and downloaded to read the whole thing. You did? Uh Yeah, Uh I'm looking at it now. And it's so extraordinary that this happened in not my lifetime, but in the lifetime of people you and I both know. It's not that long ago. It isn't that long ago. And uh, as she's getting ready, she also has some really heartbreaking decisions to make, clearly about things that she can bring and things that she chooses to dispose of that are too Japanese and therefore can bring a certain amount of suspicion to the family. But they were not allowed to bring any pets, which you really tackle very straight on. And it was, it was heartbreaking. Oh, the scene with the dog. When I began writing that first chapter again as a story I just I knew that there was a sign there was a woman that read the sign and I I knew that she had this very old dog and she would have to decide what to do about that dog and then in my research I read so many accounts of animals and I remember reading Bainbridge Island you know where that is it's right off the coast I've been there yeah oh you have oh it's beautiful um evacuation order number one the first order was issued on that island and I read an account of the army trucks taking the Japanese Americans 
down to the docks. And their dogs, the, the Japanese-Americans families, their dogs just racing after the army trucks because they didn't know what, what was happening to their masters. And an- animals, I think, like children are innocent. And I remember also my grandmother actually describing just getting rid of the chickens that she would had in the yard for a long time. And she just, she had to slaughter them all the day before they left. And my mother you know, described very vividly. I remember that my grandmother just broke their necks one by one under the handle of a broomstick. And my mother said later, oh, it was a mess. So something had to be done with these animals, and they didn't have a lot of time to figure out what to do. So I think expediency was, was really driving many of those decisions. But in the in the book, I feel like the mother, she loves this dog. It's on its last legs. It's very, very old. It's not going to survive for much longer if she'd given him away to somebody else. And so I think she wants to give it a very humane and dignified ending. At least that's the way that I wrote it, although people interpret that, the dog scene in very different ways. I was so deeply moved by that chapter and that woman and the way she simply went about doing what she needed to do. And even though she couldn't have felt matter-of-fact about it, the matter-of-factness in which she went about it was heartbreaking. I feel like she's the character who's most distant from myself, so I had to imagine myself as just being this very traditional, in many ways, Japanese woman who was just going to keep it together for the sake of those children. And also, you know, Japanese as a culture are very, very law-abiding, and so they do follow the rules. And so when the government is telling you to do this, 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 and this, you do it. But I think you just kind of focus on the day-to-day. What do I have to do to get through this day? You know, what do I have to tell the children? What do I have to take? But she's very, very methodical because I think if she weren't, I think she would just fall apart. And she can't afford to at that moment. I mean, her husband's been gone already for a few months. She doesn't know what his ultimate fate will be or what hers will be. And she has no choice except for to remain very, very together. Yeah, she gets depressed when she's in the camps. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I guess a delayed response. I think she can afford to then at that moment, but not in the beginning. But it struck me that... When she had something to do and she knew what it was that she had to do, she could stave off that desolation. But at the camps, there was very little she had to do. And the boredom was part of the problem. I mean, I think for many of the adults, that was the problem. It was very demoralizing. I mean, especially for the men, I think it was a very emasculating experience. These were hardworking men. Many of them were agricultural workers, farmers, who had always worked every every day of their life, seven days a week, you know. And for the first time in their lives, they had no work to do, and they were no longer looked upon as being the leaders of their families. Children started to eat with other children in the dining hall. So there's this real kind of fracturing of the family. The father was no longer the head. And I think that many of the older folks did get very depressed during those long, long years of waiting. And, of course, now we knew it was three and a half years, but at the time, nobody had any idea of how long. No, they didn't know when the war was going to end. They didn't know what would happen to them after the war ended. Some of them were afraid that they would be deported to Japan. Some were afraid that they would be executed. They didn't know. They really didn't know. Asian immigrants were not eligible for citizenship at that point. No, by law they were not. I think many of the older folks, if they could have, they would have chosen to become citizens because most of them had been there since before 1924. After the 1924 Immigration Act, there were Asians were not allowed into the country. So most of them had been there you know, for almost 20 years. 
this is probably a little-known fact. In California, if you were a Japanese immigrant, you couldn't marry a white, a white American without that person's citizenship being taken away. And there were also what were called alien land laws. You, if you were a Japanese immigrant, you couldn't buy property. You couldn't rent often for longer than X amount, two or three years. So that was another reason that these farming families were always on the move. They were often moving from one piece of rented land to another or from one agricultural camp to another. But the laws are really against them from the very start. In your book, When the Emperor Was Divine, both the daughter and the son really are all American kids. Completely. Culturally, they're, they're American. I mean, they don't, they're totally American. At least, at least they think they are until they realize that that's not quite how they're seen by, by everyone else. You know, it was so poignant because the entire time the family was at the camp, the mother wore her key to the house around her neck. And that family was lucky. They owned their own home, so there was a place to come back to. All these years, she's, she's wearing the key to the house around her neck. And, I mean, there's just this dream of going back home. And they are very lucky because most Japanese didn't own their homes because they weren't allowed to own property. But you could, you could get around that law by, you know, by buying your house in your children's name and your child is an American citizen. And there's always this dream of going back and everything will be okay. And yet when they do go home, nothing is okay at all. I mean, the house is ransacked. Many, many people have lived there during their absence. All the things that they locked up in a room upstairs are, of course, gone. The whole house has been stripped. And yet they do have a place that's theirs to call home. How close are the events in this book to the actual experiences of your mother, uncle, and grandparents? I'd say pretty close. I remember my mother describing to me coming home and and that her mother had locked everything upstairs in this room and put two padlocks in the door, like the mother in the book. But of course, nothing's left. And I remember there was a real shortage of metal, and I remember my mother saying that everything had been taken from the house. The house had been stripped, so even the stovepipe and the the motor to the washing machine were gone. But it could have been worse. I think that's something that people always say to themselves. It could have been worse. It could have been worse. There are many families that came back after the war and had to live in these trailer camps for a long, long time. Or they lived in hostels or in churches. Many had no place to come back to. And I think the anti-Japanese sentiment after the war was even worse than it had been before the war. They were not welcome back. I think Many of their neighbors thought it would never come back, and that's why they felt that it was okay to maybe ransack their houses, take their furniture, do whatever. But I'd say that the bare-bones outline of the novel does resemble very closely what happened to my family. We never find out what happened to the father when he's taken away. Did you ever find out what happened to your grandfather? All I know is that my mother said when when she first saw her father, he was paroled to, to join his family in, I think it was late 1943, in the camp in Utah. But my mother said he was just very, very thin when she saw him, and she almost didn't recognize him. And we don't know what happened to him, but after the war, he was very ill. And, I mean, the men who were rounded up by the FBI in the very beginning, right after Pearl Harbor was bombed, many of them were community leaders or else they were journalists. And they tended to be older, so my grandfather was 60 and so he was, you know, he was not young. And after the war, he had three strokes. And so he, he could never work again. And I mean, many of them were too old anyway to restart their careers. And so after the war, my grandmother went to work as a cleaning lady, which she did for many, many years to support the family and put her children through college. 
But I feel like for them, and I think for many Japanese-American families, the hard part, it wasn't those three and a half years in the camps, it was coming back and trying to get their lives started again. And I think for many of the parents' generation, it was too late. It was too late. They lost everything. It was too late for them to start over. So they placed all of their hopes, I think, on their children, which is a terrible burden, I think, if you're one of those children to carry. In the chapter where the family comes home, you explore many things, but I think part of what you explore is the way they're coming to grips with their racial identity. It's not that it didn't happen before it did, but in that chapter, they're really very much rejecting things that are Japanese. They're ashamed. I mean, they're, and they're also, they're children. They still don't quite understand, but they don't want to be identified with anything that's Japanese. I mean, of course, you know, right after Pearl Harbor was bombed, the Japanese-American families were just burning all of their Japanese things. There were bonfires, you know, in, every, in everyone's backyard. And so they come back, and I think all any child wants to do is, on some level, just really to fit back in, just to fit in and to be accepted. They don't want to stand out, so they really try to downplay their Japanese as, as much as they can. And yet they're still seen as being very foreign and other by their classmates. But... You know, they're determined never to be seen as the enemy again, which I think in some way means further rejection of their parents. The book was published in the year following 9-11, and it has a very particular resonance in that context. I finished writing the novel in June of 2001, so I had no idea that it would resonate in the way that it has post 9 11 as a sort of cautionary tale about what can happen when the government starts, you know, singling out ethnic groups as being the enemy. I mean, I thought the book, if I were lucky, might be res- respectfully reviewed as a, you know, as an historical novel. But I think for many, many Japanese Americans, 9-11 just brought back so many memories. I mean, it was just, it was all so very, very familiar. You just have a, a group that overnight becomes the enemy. And, you know, I think it brought up a lot of unpleasant memories for many of the older Japanese Americans. You know, you have people being rounded up in secret and and sent away to secret detention camps. And I think being a dangerous enemy alien is not that unlike being an an enemy combatant. There's all these eerie parallels. And I always thought while writing the novel that that this could never happen again. But it just seems like so many ways we, we really never learn from history. And, you know, it's odd. I've been traveling the country for years and speaking to many young people about the camps, but a lot of them have not heard about the camps still. It's not something that's included in most American history books, and so some of them are surprised. They'll say, this is a work of fiction, right? It didn't really happen. I'll have to explain that. Yes, it is a work of fiction, but it is based on a very big and often omitted historical truth. You had actually wanted to be a painter. That's what you had studied in school. That's what you went to graduate school for. How did you make a transition to writing? I transitioned to writing after failing as a painter, and I do recommend failure. I think it's a very good experience for anyone to go through. I never thought I would end up as a writer. I was an art major as an undergraduate at Yale. All throughout my 20s, it was painting or trying to paint. I began a graduate program in painting. I came to New York, and I went to the New York Studio School, and I studied more drawing and painting. But at a certain point, I just I felt very frustrated. I couldn't make the pictures that I was seeing in my head, which were so clear to me. I mean, I knew exactly what kind of paintings I wanted to make, but technically I wasn't able to execute. And I just became very, very frustrated and self-conscious. I mean, I, there was a point where I couldn't even put down a mark on the canvas without wiping it away and being sure that it was wrong. And 
at a certain point, I was just so unhappy. And I'd started painting, you know, when I was younger, very joyously. And I loved to see. I loved to look. I loved to put down the mark on the canvas. I, I love the smell of the paint. I mean, there's nothing more that I love than color, really. I feel like it's it's just magic. But at a certain point, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I was so unhappy. And when I quit painting, I put down my brushes one day for good. And I was working evenings in New York as a word processor. And I began going every afternoon to my neighborhood cafe. And I would just sit there. I would just read for a couple hours every day before I went into work. And I hadn't read a lot of contemporary fiction, but I began reading a lot of short stories. And I love reading and just being immersed in story. And so after reading for a couple of years, I just very tentatively signed up for a, an informal writing workshop in New York, just kind of on a lark. And I, I could always write, but I, I never thought I had anything to say. But I always enjoyed words. I think I think the medium of language is it's a little bit easier for me than the medium of paint for whatever reason. And so I just began writing little vignettes and stories, but very much in the spirit of play. I wasn't thinking, I have to make it as a writer or I have to write a novel. I wasn't thinking that at all, which is something that I, I really like to do and that I was exploring. And because I was older at that point, too, I was 30, I felt like maybe it was the right time to start something different and new. I didn't put the same pressures on myself as I did when I was painting because I had failed. I just felt like I really had nothing to lose and I had nothing to prove either. It's certainly when The Emperor Was Divine is an historical novel, and not to overstate things, but historical novels tend to be these big fat books filled with grand statements. And yours doesn't do that. And I think a lot of its power comes from the understatement, the focus on getting through the everyday, and the fact that it is such a visual book. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that while I was writing it, but it was pointed out to me afterwards. I almost felt like I was a camera, you know, just following the characters through their day. And I feel like the practice of painting and writing aren't that different. I feel like when, if you're a painter, you go into your studio every day, you sketch out a scene loosely on the canvas and you bring up the details, you know, one by one. You don't fixate on a corner and get that right before you go into the whole thing, but you try to bring up the whole picture at once. And I feel like with writing, you know, I go to the cafe, I try to sketch out a scene very loosely, and then I just bring up the details and you slowly bring the whole thing into focus. I often can see a scene in my head you know, I can see what it looks like before I begin to describe it on the page. I can see it very clearly in my head. For the, when the emperor was divine, I feel like the way things look was so important. And I feel like the landscape of the desert in particular was almost like another character on the novel. It was just such a dramatically bleak, bleak, bleak landscape. And then just to imagine yourself living there for more than three years is just almost impossible. And yet, and yet they did it. And yet they were lucky and that they got to come home, too. You received a Penn Faulkner for I did. the Buddha uh -huh. in the Attic, and it was right. also named a finalist for the National Book Award. Correct, yeah. And now your book, When the Emperor is Divine, continues to be read. Both your books have extremely long shelf lives. As a writer, you, you just don't know what kind of life your book will have. I mean, when the, when the Emperor was Divine first came out, you know, it, it was very respectfully reviewed. And then two years out, it started being picked up by cities and and colleges as community reads or, or freshman reads, but it, it took a while for it to take off, and then it just kind of built up this momentum that was completely surprising and unexpected for me as an author. And yet I felt like it was filling in a gap. I mean, I feel like there hasn't been a lot of 
fiction written about the camps, which to me is very odd. I also wonder why there aren't more Japanese-American writers. That, too, seems odd. I mean, there's so many in the Chinese-American, the second generation, you know, Maxine Hong Kingston, Amy Tan. I feel like they've been writing well and early. You know, from the 1970s on, they've been writing. But I, I feel like there aren't a lot of Japanese-American writers out there. And I feel like for anyone like myself who's a son or daughter of a former internee, you know, the story of the camps would be the obvious story to tell. So... But there hasn't been a lot written about them, so I, I do feel like I'm telling the story that needs to be told but hasn't really been told too often so far. Julie, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Just I'm so honored, I have to say, to be part of this, this Big Read program, so it's really a pleasure. I was so surprised. That was Julie Atsuka. Her novel, When the Emperor Was Divine, is a recent Big Read selection. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Next week, musician Bora Yoon. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>